Welcome to the podcast for Monday, Thursday, March 24th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What do you give someone who has everything? And I'm not talking just about Uncle Dexter who likes to travel the world and bring home knickknacks from his various adventures. No, I'm talking about really important people like kings and queens, chiefs, premiers, and presidents. When heads of state visit each other, gifts are often exchanged. I found a list from the National Archives that shared some of the gifts that our U.S. presidents have received from other foreign dignitaries. Gifts like this Norwegian tea set. In April 1939, the Crown Prince and Princess of Norway visited President and Mrs. Roosevelt at the Roosevelt family home in Hyde Park, New York. They were treated to tea and a recital by local Norwegian-Americans, a picnic in the rolling countryside of the Hudson River Valley. The royal couple was enchanted by their visit. So, upon returning home, they sent the Roosevelts this Art Deco-style tea set as a remembrance. In 1972, the Soviet Union General Secretary, Leonid Brezhnev, met with President Nixon to sign the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, SALT, agreement. Brezhnev gave President Nixon this cloisonné liqueur set. Cloisonné is a difficult technique of soldering and enamel painting, and it's a specialty of Russian artists. One of the oldest gifts may, may be this Roman water or wine vessel from the 1st or 2nd century A.D., Israeli Defense Minister Shimon Peres bought this gift to President Ford. It's just six and a half inches tall by five inches wide, and, but it's in incredible condition for how old an artifact it is. Don't you agree? And finally, in 1985, the president of Algeria, Shanli Benejid, gave this saddle to President Reagan. Now, because of his love for horseback riding, President Reagan received dozens of saddles from both the general public and foreign leaders, but this one I loved because it was so richly embroidered. Well, it's Monday Thursday, friends, and all throughout this Lenten season, we've been looking at some of Jesus' encounters with women. You may be a bit surprised to discover that the reading for tonight isn't a retelling of the Last Supper, nor is it a recounting of Jesus' washing the disciples' feet, though I will touch on both of these later. The passage from Matthew 26 takes place two days before the celebration of Passover. So this would have been Wednesday of Holy Week, the night before the Last Supper. Matthew 26, verses 6 and 7. Now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as, she, as he sat at the table. Bethany was a village on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. We don't know much about Jesus' host here, Simon the leper. In biblical days, the term leprosy was used for a variety of skin diseases, so it might not have been what we would refer to today as Hansen's disease. Nevertheless, it's another wonderful reminder that Jesus wasn't afraid of folks that others avoided and marginalized. Well, this unnamed woman comes to him less than 48 hours before his impending death. Each of the four Gospels tells the story of a woman who anointed Jesus, but here Matthew gives us very little details. We don't know who she is or how she encountered Jesus before this. Nevertheless, she comes with a gift. What do you give the Savior of the world who has everything? A Norwegian tea set, a Roman wine vessel, a, an embroidered saddle? Matthew tells us that she brought an alabaster jar of very costly ointment. 
This is what an alabaster jar would have looked like back in Jesus' day. This particular artifact is dated 1200 to 568 B.C. A small jar like this by itself would have cost about a half a year's wage of an average worker. The ointment that would have been inside this was probably nard, spike nard, which had to be imported from Nepal and would have been worth an entire year's salary. So this was a very valuable gift that this woman has brought to Jesus. Can you imagine if I had asked each of you to bring a check representing one and a half times your annual salary to church tonight? Yeah, me too. What did she do with this costly ointment? Well, she anointed Jesus. She poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, in our modern day setting, this sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? I mean, what if Jesus didn't want to smell like perfume for the rest of the night? It's important to know that in early Jewish culture, there were a variety of reasons for anointing another person. It wasn't uncommon for hosts to honor their dinner guests with anointing oil. In those situations, oil was placed on the scalp or on the skin for anointing. But using oil didn't have the same ramifications as using perfume for anointing. When one brought perfume, especially expensive and fragrant perfume like this, well, it was done for one of three reasons. Romantic purposes, cosmetic purposes, or burial rites. Verse 8. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. So here, Jesus' own disciples are getting a bit upset at this extravagant gift that this unnamed woman has lavished upon Jesus. They see it as a waste. You can feed a lot of hungry people with a year and a half's wages. You can help clothe, house, and care for many folks if you had that kind of money to work with, right? And those of us who are frugal and practical want to shout, Amen, disciples, you tell them. But this isn't really about the poor. This isn't even about the monetary value of the ointment and the alabaster jar. No, this is about her love for Jesus. A love that was, to borrow the phrase from the MasterCard series of commercials, priceless. And the disciples miss that completely. Verse 10, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly I tell you, whenever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. So leave her alone, Jesus chides. Wait, why, why are you bothering her? He knows exactly what she is doing with her expensive ointment. It's not about romance or cons- cosmetics. It's about his burial. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial, Jesus says. Let that sink in for a moment. When the bodies of kings were prepared for burial, they were anointed with expensive perfume, starting from the tops of their heads. Jesus had been trying to prepare his disciples for what was about to take place. He knew that his days were drawing to a close. He knew that the shadow of the cross was lengthening and had almost overtaken him. He wanted his disciples to be ready and prepared, but they seemed to miss it completely. Not this unnamed woman. She somehow knew her act of love and devotion was interpreted by Jesus as anointing his body for burial. We know that Jesus will be crucified so close to sundown on Friday, which was the start of the Sabbath, that his friends won't have any time to anoint his body for burial. That's why both Mark and Luke tell us that on Easter morning, the women came to Jesus' tomb with spices 
so that they might go and anoint him. But Matthew doesn't say that. Here's what Matthew says, verse, chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. There's no anointing at all. They just went to see the tomb. Why? Well, because Jesus' body was already anointed by this unnamed woman. Whether she intended to or not, Jesus interpreted her offering of love and costly ointment as the anointing of his body for burial. And when he scolds the disciples for scolding her, he's not saying that the poor no longer need to be helped. It's, it's just that the amount of time that Jesus has left is very, very limited. There will always be opportunities to give to the poor, and we need to continue to do that. But in this time and in this place, there were only a few hours left before Jesus' death. And this woman used that moment to pour out her love for Jesus as an extravagant and powerful way. And so, here we are in the specific night of Holy Week, friends. We've already reenacted the extravagant and powerful love of Jesus for us through sharing the sacrament of Holy Communion. The alabaster jar of Jesus' body was broken and poured out for all humanity on this very night so long ago. His love flowed freely and filled the earth with the fragrance of forgiveness and eternal life. Some might even argue that it was a too high of a price to pay, too expensive a vessel to be broken just like that. But Jesus knew it was just the right gift for just the right time. Extravagant love always comes at the perfect time. But there's one last opportunity for us to experience tonight. The name Maundy Thursday comes from the Latin word for new commandment. In the Gospel of John, rather than sharing a final meal together, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. At the end of that encounter, Jesus says, this is John 13, 34, and 35, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, when Jesus kneels at the feet of his disciples and begins to wash them, Simon Peter objects. He tells Jesus, it's not really necessary. To which Jesus says, you just don't understand it right now. Later you will. And Peter says, what I understand is that I'm not going to let you touch my feet, Jesus. And those of us who relate to Peter say, that's right. I hear you, brother. But what Jesus says next is shocking. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And so then Peter volunteers, you know what, Jesus, on second uh, maybe I'll have you wash my whole body right here and right now. It's a slightly humorous scene. I recognize that many of us here tonight are like Peter. It's, it's very uncomfortable to have others touching our feet or for us to touch others' feet. In biblical days, washing a person's feet was a difficult, difficult and burdensome work. People wore at most sandals in a world of heat, loose garbage and animal waste. People's feet were crusted, smelly, repulsive, or worse, if they were diseased or had open sores. Even husbands could not demand that their wives wash their feet. So it was something that was necessary, but it was done as a courtesy and honor of a guest arriving at a host's home. It was done out of love and affection, dedication, or service. It expressed a relationship of obedience and submission freely given, not forced. Megan McKenna tells us that some disciples would wash their master's feet, but and it would be an honor that expressed a level of trust and intimacy between the two. But never, ever, ever did a master wash 
his disciples' feet. Until Jesus did. I give you a new commandment, Jesus later told them, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Now, I'm going to invite, or maybe it'll feel more like a challenge to you, to consider taking part in this ancient ritual tonight. It's an opportunity for us to model our love for Jesus by submitting in obedience and service to another person. Here's how it's going to work. There are four stations set up with wash basins. You're invited to come up and sit directly in front of a basin. There will be someone kneeling in front of you, and you can kick off your shoes and remove your socks, and the person will pour a little warm water on your feet. Then they will dry, take a towel and dry them off, at which point you're invited to move around to the front of the basin and kneel down for the next person who comes. We have a chair for those of you who can't uh, get all the way down to the ground. That's okay. You can sit and do the act as well. If you're waiting to have your feet washed, you can sit in the pew uh, next to the one who's being washed. This can be a very powerful experience, friends, if we come with humility and love. How amazing will it be to see a husband washing the feet of his wife, children washing the feet of their parents, young people washing the feet of our seniors. You don't have to have an expensive alabaster jar of ointment. This can be your act of love for our Savior on this fateful night. And remember, expressions of extravagant love come just the right time and are priceless. Now, if you really, really, really have a problem with people touching your feet, you can extend your hands to have them washed instead. But I want to challenge you to push past your insecurities and feelings of discomfort and be open to offering your feet to be washed. As we come forward, may the spirit of this unnamed woman and the sacrifice of Christ Jesus fill our hearts and minds. 